Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for our election benefit and COVID-19 webinar. My name is Brian Driscoll, and I'm One Digital's Regional Managing Principal in New England. Earlier this month, month, our compliance team walked us through some of the issues surrounding the election and potential impact on healthcare. Today, we plan to dive further into a variety of issues and get a sense for what is happening in Washington, D.C., as the country prepares for the November 3rd election. With us today to share an insider's look, we are fortunate to have a good friend of One Digital, Joel Wood, from the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers, commonly known as CIAB. The council is located in Washington, D.C., and works on behalf of 200-plus of the world's top commercial and employee benefit brokerages. Additionally, the council works on government advocacy initiatives with other trade groups and has taken decisive action to stabilize markets impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Joel is Senior Vice President, Government Affairs, and oversees Council PAC, the Association's Political Action Committee. He's a regular featured speaker at One Digital Annual Conferences in Atlanta. He's been the top regulatory and government affairs officer at the Council since 1993. Over the course of his career, Joel has been deeply engaged in many issues impacting the commercial insurance brokerage industry, from health insurance reform efforts to terrorism reinsurance, to regulatory reforms, both small and large, at both the federal and state level. Before we get going, I'll remind our audience that we'll ask you to submit any questions through the Q&A function, which will be monitored throughout our conversation. Joel, thanks for joining us today. Before I throw it to you uh, to start the conversation, uh, I have to ask you, don't you ever get tired of this stuff? (laughs) I get tired of everything having to be remote, Brian, but I am always happy to be with you and any one digital crowd. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us. So let me throw it uh, to you to uh, start the conversation. Well, again, uh, really want to, I was just thinking, uh, as you started this up, um, as you noted, I've been with the association for 27 years. I, you know, typical background of an inside the Beltway, uh, Washington lobbyist. I came up working for a member of Congress from my home state of Tennessee, uh, worked for him for several years, went to a different insurance organization. Like most people came to insurance through the side door, not the front door. And, right. um, and in the early years of one digital, um, it was a very boutique firm doing a very a specific thing, uh, almost exclusively in the very small group market. Uh, and um, I recall very vividly uh, during that year-long debate over the ACA in the 1990s, early night, uh, in the Obama administration, 2009, to, um uh, they're everybody's saying, you know, that Adam Bruckman and One Digital, they're really great, but boy, they're 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 not going to survive this. Uh, everybody anticipated that those groups of under a hundred were going to disappear, and I think about how the extraordinary growth and marketplace dominance you guys had. So it is a privilege to work with you. As you noted, it's two hundred member firms of our association. Um, in the commercial property casualty space, that's over 90% of the premiums, a lot of M&A activity. Uh, but in the benefit space, uh, it's upwards of 70%. If you count the pre-COVID number of 180 plus million Americans that receive their health insurance through their employer, uh, over 100, uh, almost 120 million of them are in plans that I remember firms touched in some way, where the brokers were or the consultants too. So, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, and even though 
most of our member firms' revenue, unlike One Digital, is in commercial property casualty. Ever since the ACA, it's almost the flip. It's two thirds of all the time that I, I spend as a lobbyist uh, is on the uh, benefit side because of, frankly, the existential threats uh, to employer-sponsored insurance uh, that have occurred uh, uh, in the last uh, 10, 12 years. And uh, we continue to face, you know, huge consequences with the election coming up. Here we are 13 days uh, out from, uh, you know, every four years you're always here. It's the most important election of, uh, of your lifetime. And this year, I don't think anybody doubts that. Um, the other thing that's really incredibly significant about this that we're watching very, very closely is, um, you know, all of these Senate races. If, you know, again, I'm inside the Beltway conventional wisdom, Washington lobbyist. So, um, you know, I will, I will tell you, I believe the polls. Um, I will also tell you that, that on election night in 2016, uh, we had an election watch party with a lot of brokers in our office and my, my, uh, I've got an R by my name and my Democratic colleague, uh, he started pacing the floor real early when Florida went, North Carolina went. It was looking bad in the Rust Belt. But at 10.15, I poured myself into the back of an Uber, uh, knowing that Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee had not reported any results. So I'm still pretty confident as to the outcome. I get a call right away from one of my assistants who says, hey, Joel, if you still believe that Hillary's going to win this election, uh, Vegas has got five to one odds on it. I'm like, man, put a thousand bucks on Hillary right now for me. And so he did. Uh, I'm grateful that my wife is not in the other room right now because she still doesn't know that. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but uh, right now things are looking very good for Democrats and, yeah. uh, um, uh, and for a potential sweep uh, that would include maintaining control of the house and potentially regaining control of the Senate. And we're going to get into a bunch of a lot more granularity on that. Um, so, you know, and obviously the other thing that is um, certainly influencing everything in a year with so many, uh, it's become such a cliche, but the black swan moments uh, is the Supreme Court uh, and the implications for uh, uh, the, the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, the clear um, uh, reality that uh, that we're going to go from RBG to ACB, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, she performed well in, uh, in the hearings. She seems to be very unflappable. Uh, I understand well why I'm sure some of the people who are listening to this uh, cringe at the notion of someone who is as uh, staunchly conservative and, and uh, uh, strict uh, constitutionalists uh, will be replacing an icon like RBG. Uh, but she performed well in the in the hearings, and it's clear the votes are there. You're going to have the defections of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski just because they don't want to vote before the election, but uh, uh, all the other votes are secure. So the Joel, 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 just just on that, I, I had shared with you before. So we have RBG, we have ACB. Uh, my initials are actually BFD, and it doesn't ha- doesn't have to be me, but I'm looking forward to the day where someone on the Supreme Court has those same initials. Um, <laughs> I, I think that would be memorable. I, I do hope that your tombstone just has those three letters. Gotcha. Um, is there is so that you think the votes are lined up uh, to, to pass? Is there anything? Because if I recall from the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, he, he seemed to kind of sail through in week one. It was week two uh, where things kind of went sideways. Any any rumblings? Yeah, uh, you're hearing that that may or may not happen. 
Yeah, and uh, and I, you know, I would I would be shocked. But you know, how many times this year have we all been shocked? Um, so I, I just don't see it. And, and most, the biggest implication, and uh, I, I will say this, and you know, I'm I'm a Republican, but um, my general counsel is a staunch Democrat, and he's he's tormented. Uh, by this change on the Supreme Court. He'd been praying for RBG's health all year long. And, um, but even he agrees, uh, that, um, that all of the, uh, foretelling of the Supreme Court, uh, decision on the ACA is overwrought. Um, uh, we saw last week where, uh, Judge, uh, Barrett, uh, schooled the Senate Judiciary Committee on her views on severability, that issue of even if they decide that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, um, the, the, she, uh, um, uh, puts herself in the category of Kavanaugh, of Justice Roberts, of, uh, and to a lesser extent, Justice Gorsuch and Justice, uh, uh Thomas, uh, of, you know, upholding the intent of Congress. And, uh, and so even if, you know, and so, so much is being made that, that pre-existing conditions restrictions, and that is a salient issue for Democrats. A poll last week, uh, with the Kaiser Family Foundation said that 78% of voters very strongly do not want pre-ex, uh, to be removed. Uh, interestingly, 58%, only 58 said that they don't want Obamacare overturned. Uh, which just goes to show you, reminds me of the old, you know, was unpopular. After the thing it first passed, Jimmy Kimball's having an interview on the street with somebody and he says, uh, so what do you think about Obamacare? And the guy goes, it sucks. He's like, well, what do you think about the Affordable Care Act? He's like, it's fantastic. Uh, so we, you know, we always see that factor. It plays to Democrats' advantage. It certainly played uh, pre-ex major issue in 2018 wave election for the Democrats where they retook the House. Uh, I think that it is. But even if you assume a Trump re-election, you're talking about a Supreme Court sending this back to the appeals court. We were talking about, and then the question would be how much more would have to be unraveled. Then it would go back to the Supreme Court. We're talking a two-year process there. So I do think that it's a little bit uh, disingenuous is probably too strong of a word, but I understand the political salience of it. For us, Brian, it's the, you know, most of what we've been posturing on is the public option. Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, I, I'm look. I, I've got an R by my name, but I know that that Joe Biden is is not Bernie Sanders, and uh, and arguably uh, Biden defeated Sanders because of Sanders' position on Medicare for all. If you'll recall, all the candidates, whether it's Mayor Pete, Amy, Kamala, all of them, the sort of you know nobody really wanted Joe as their first choice. But when it when all the other candidates trailed off, and it became uh, and Bernie became the front runner. All of a sudden, the perfect did not become the enemy of the good for Democratic primary voters. And so Biden knows this. I'm not equating him to Bernie Sanders, but I'm really worried about the future of uh, the public uh, option and erosion of employer-sponsored insurance. And a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, if you just take a look at the map of Medicare reimbursement, what you private payers, employers are paying for insurance compared to uh, Medicare prices. And so much of the public option, there's a million different extractions of it, um, has to do with having uh, available on the exchanges a um, a Medicare pegged uh, option for people to to uh, to buy into. Uh, yeah. 
If, if I could add there, Joel, on the, you know, just on the Medicare, uh, the government shift to private health insurance from a cost standpoint um, on, on your slide there. I think one of, you know, one of the strategies our teams have, are having success with, quite frankly, is a strategy called reference-based pricing, which roots uh, the cost of healthcare uh, tied to, to Medicare as opposed to a discount um, off of what bill charges would be. And, and so for employer groups, I know our teams are, are talking to our clients on a regular basis for those that are eligible for that uh, approach, but it's been uh, successful in trying to tackle that cost shift uh, moving forward. So for those that are uh, listening and watching in uh, for this, this webinar here, if you're interested in learning more, please reach out to your one digital representative to uh, have more discussions on tackling exactly that problem. I'm a lobbyist and not an employee benefits consultant, but I am very aware of that partnership you guys have with uh, ELAP and the reference-based approach. I can only imagine how badly the hospitals hate that program uh, and and the providers. uh, And and, and there's a tremendous amount of tension that is going on in the marketplace, and I think you guys are offering now – it, that is a product, my understanding, is available only in the self-insured marketplace. Is that correct? That's, cor- that's correct. That's correct. Uh, but I think we're going to continue to see an evolution on those types of products, irrespective of what the political results are and how far they go. Back to Biden, though, the question, huge question marks as to, and I can understand why he's fairly vague about this. And you can't complain about Biden being vague when Trump has never presented a a comprehensive um, uh, alternative to uh, Obamacare, uh, despite being opposed to it from the inception of his campaign. Uh, but it depends on which Joe Biden you're listening to. At the first debate, uh, Biden said that the public option would be available only for those who had no other options uh, in the marketplace. However, if you look on the Biden uh, campaign website under healthcare, uh, it says that they, they intend to double all of the subsidies on the exchanges. And in addition, there's a provision in the ACA that says that if you have equivalent or better coverage available to you, for example, through your employer, then you're not eligible to get subsidized products on the exchanges. They want to do away with that. Now, you can just imagine with all the pressures of having not bet the healthcare cost curve, um, of, of employers just looking at these numbers and throwing up their hands. Um, now, I think the importance today um, of uh, and, and in, COVID, in the COVID environment, uh, everything's been thrown on its head. But, you know, the ability for employers to attract and retain good employees through offering competitive benefits remains paramount. And we perhaps even underestimated that during the ACA. We thought that people would look at the the $2,000 penalty uh, and just dump uh, employees over, given how uh, rich the subsidies were that were available to uh, families uh, uh, making up to 400%. Some subsidies were available up to 400% of the poverty line. That's something like $95,000 a year. So that's right. a lot of Americans, but that never happened. Uh, but Biden says in the debate, it's only for those who have no other options. The campaign website says a different thing. Uh, the Biden uh, Bernie unity document which probably doesn't matter. It was something that he did to bring the party together around the convention, uh, went much further in talking about a vibrant public option. Um, so it, it and then where is Kamala on all this? The interesting thing from my standpoint as a lobbyist, I really had no interactions with her because 
Every senator can be on up to like five committees and none of her committees touched on anything that we care about. We care about the finance committee, the health, education, labor and pensions committee, uh, the banking committee to a lesser extent, uh, the small business committee. And she was not on any of those. And it showed during her campaign where she stumbled badly on Medicare for all. Recall that town hall with Jake Tapper where, uh, he said, are you for Medicare for your all? And she's like, absolutely. Well, what if uh, people want to stay on their private insurance? She says it goes. And she scrambled to pull back from that position. She's been quiet. I don't expect her to be much of an influence on the health-related issues because it simply was never her area of expertise. But she does tend to put the the finger on the more liberal side. Now, other so this is actually Joel. So just on the public option. So really, uh, getting down to you know the definition of eligibility, right? Or how far or wide or narrow eligibility is defined, assuming that it becomes an option is going to really kind of dictate the direction of the employer sponsored healthcare and the impact of it. It does. Uh, and, and I think the most important thing to keep your eye on, again, this is making a massive assumption that the polls are correct, but it's going to be a democratic year. The question is, is it going to be, um, a, a, a good year, a wave year or a tsunami year and tsunami being, you know, 1980 or 1994 when Republicans, you know, lots of accidental congressmen and senators showed up, uh, as winners. Uh, but the question then is going to be, what's the sequencing? Um, you know, there's so much, there's so on the one hand, there's so much pent up emotion among the democratic base. We're seeing that with the hundreds of millions of dollars that are being raised left and right. Um, very strong anti-Trump sensation and, and wanting to move on so many different fronts. The question is, number one, it's going to, of course, be COVID relief. And that even, you know, in even assuming unified democratic control, uh, they, they will get to a massive package. Uh, but that won't be easy. There are going to be all kinds of other pressures to address things. If the Supreme Court does take that position in the Affordable Care Act, pressure to, to change that. Um, the other factor that's driving much of this is the trustees of uh, Medicare came out with a report just um, a uh, about a month or so ago that Medicare is going to go broke in two in 2024, as opposed to 2026, this creates sort of a crisis uh, atmosphere. Uh, but it's very, very difficult. There are a lot of moderate Democrats who really strongly support the employer-provided group health insurance marketplace. Um, it, you know, this is you, you look at how the ACA uh, took more than a year, even though President Obama had that ironclad 60 votes before Ted Kennedy passed away in the Senate, and he had a 79-vote majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, and then just tons of other stuff that's unresolved. I really thought that the one thing on the benefit side that we would get done in this presidential election year was uh, to address the issue of surprise billing. Um, it drives everybody crazy, uh, it especially drives people crazy when they realize that so much of it is driven by specialty groups that are owned by hedge funds that were refused to participate in networks. We hear the examples on air ambulances and just regular ambulance service, but a lot on the specialty front. And then just broader than that, we something's got to give irrespective of the election results, something's got to give on prescription drugs. Now, the drug companies actually hate Trump, but he hasn't been very successful in driving his initiative on this stuff. Um, let me just, if, if I could, I'd like to give just a personal example uh, that I think is just emblematic of how difficult 
the drug pricing issue is. And I can sort of argue this both ways. So my son, James, he's 23 years old. He suffers from Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, terrible disease. And uh, he, uh, like all kids who are diagnosed with Duchenne, is jacked up on corticosteroids. And um, they have extended his life. However, they come with huge consequences. We all know prednisone. Uh, you know, it's been around for 50 years. It's a nickel a pill. And he's, uh, we stopped counting the number of bones that he broke because of the steroid use. So we had heard anecdotally a decade ago about a alternative steroid that was available for a different indication in Europe that we could legally ship in. It was not an FDA approved drug, but we could legally get it prescribed in Europe. I paid five, seven thousand dollars a year for it, uh, called Inflasa. Seemed to do better now, but it was all anecdotal and he's, he's had much greater, uh, bone health as a result. And so small biotech out of Chicago decides, now this is really interesting. Let's run some trials on these Duchenne kids and see if we can prove the case that this drug, which is already being manufactured, uh, is better for kids with DMD and has fewer side effects. And so, they invested $150 million, which by today's standard for drug development is very, uh, very small amount of money. Uh, and it took them about three or four years, and they proved the case. That, yes, indeed, this drug is better. So now it's approved by the FDA. Now every kid can get access to this but with a, with a physician writing the script for it. And here's this, uh, this drug that he takes every day. Price tag, $88,000 a year. Now, the insurance company doesn't pay that. They To the extent that insurers pay it, they're paying, you know, forty-two, $44,000 a year. Uh, and then there are additionally, there are um, uh, Medicaid assistance plans. And then the drug companies themselves, uh, for anybody who is not covered, they have a patient assistance plan and they get to deduct um, from their taxes based on the $88,000 price, not on the $1 price per pill marginally that it costs them to produce this. I say this not to criticize them. I'm grateful for them. But it just indicates how difficult this stuff is. And for us, what's really important for us to get to is transparency. Yeah. And and that's on uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, across, we want radical transparency throughout the healthcare pro- uh, process. Well, and that can, and actually, Joe, that, that connects back to the uh, you know the Medicare slide you had up before, right? How the cost shift happens there because nobody really knows you know that the what's being billed is actually determined relatively arbitrarily. Uh, and then discounted from there. So uh, I think it's all kind of connected on, on the bullet point on, uh, on the kind of the tax expenditure. Um, if you were, are, are you hearing much chatter, any difference between the taxation of 401k versus employer sponsored health plans? If there's a priority there uh, of a bucket that people might try to tackle first, as opposed to, Hey, everything is going to become taxable. Is that a threat at all? Uh, hell to the yes. Uh, I'm grateful you raised this because historically we have had greater difficulty. So the number one tax expenditure in the federal uh, tax code is the exemption from taxation for uh, group health insurance. Right. Number one. Number two is 401ks. Uh, and down the list are the home mortgage interest deduction and charitable contributions. So it's number one that makes us a target. You look at the trillions of dollars that have been spent at some point, you know, there's going to be a massive tax effort. Um, Biden is going to raise uh, the corporate tax uh, and there there will be a lot of other repercussions in that. The question is, with the, the, the trillions of additional relief, at some point, they're going to be looking for pay for 
Historically, our problem on the, uh, uh, the tax exemption has come mostly from Republicans, people like Paul Ryan, uh, who believe in this purest vision of consumer health care uh, uh, spending, that notion that until we as Americans start asking our docs, so how much is this MRI across the hallway you're sending me cost me as opposed to what I could go shopping for six miles down the road. And so, um, and, and so he wants to blow up the employer provided system. I think that I've always liked Paul Ryan and have known him a long since he was a staffer on the Hill. Uh, but the one time I think he was really pissed off at me was when he made the argument that the employer Exemption was a historic accident that occurred after World War II. And my line was, well, penicillin was an accident too. And, and that worked out pretty well. But, uh, he attempted in tax reform to, uh, whittle away at the tax exemption. And we, you know, I say we, I mean, success has a thousand fathers and defeat is, a uh, uh, an orphan, but the employer community and, and, um, uh, the consultant community, we stopped that one out. But it really worries me when we look at all the trillions. I feel very vulnerable on that front. I think if you see a combination of a vibrant public option and uh, scaling back the tax exemption and the economy not on a rebound, that 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 would worry me. I'm not saying I'm staying awake, staring at the ceiling uh, at three in the morning on it yet. Um, I think that, you know, good employers are going to continue to offer good benefits, but I am worried about that. Sure. One one last point on on drug pricing is there was um I think we do see the outlines of what um a transparency bill would be in that um the outgoing chairman of the Health Education Labor and Pensions Committee Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and the ranking democrat on that committee Patty Murray of Washington state uh worked together and got and unanimously got their committee to agree to a big transparency bill. And, uh, and, and, and we were extremely supportive of this. Pharma hated it and managed to basically snuff it out before it got on the Senate floor. But it's a lot of what I think that uh, we, we're going to see ultimately is going to be pushed through. And whether or not Pharma is opposed to that or they make their deal on it, um, is really the, 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 the change. I would also uh, say, you know, the question then is, well, what would, I'm talking a lot about what Biden would do. Well, what would Trump do? Um, mm-hmm. And the reality is he's promised over and over again that we're going to have a comprehensive plan. We're going to pass it. It's going to be big. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to protect pre-ex. Most of what he's done on health care has been through executive orders. And, you know, he had a big signing ceremony for his executive order in North Carolina earlier this year to protect pre-existing conditions restrictions. But there's nothing that has any teeth in that. And we do worry about some erosion um, on uh, that's come from this administration when you look at 1332 waivers, they're called, for the states to be able to offer products that don't have the essential uh, health benefits uh, provided uh, under the ACA, these short-term limited duration plans. Uh, you know, our member firms can will sell them. They'll sell any product that they can legally sell, and there are employers that are looking for something, but it doesn't have that much benefit. Um, and... Uh, and, and association health plans, they've done as, they've gone as far as they could go without a statute. But even the National Restaurant Association, when they offered their 
which would, would be a natural association health plan. It has 272 different offerings in it just because each state has its own uh, essential benefits. And so uh, mostly what we've seen is on the executive order front. But I think he would, you know, if Trump got reelected and the Senate stayed Republican, he would continue to pound and go after the drug companies. And I'm not not necessarily opposed to a lot of what they want on that front. Sure. So you want to talk politics now, Brian? Or what- yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's get into uh the, uh, the the levers of power, as they say, right? Yeah, and just before we do that, though, I, I just want to mention: don't have slides on it, but you know, so many other things affecting the commercial insurance uh, consumer uh, out there this year. We had the. The, the huge reputational hit, frankly, for insurers on business interruption uh, with it not being covered under what looks to be an overwhelming number of policies. To date, there not, have not been any negative rulings from uh, from courts uh, in favor of the trial lawyers suing them. And, and it's a tough thing. We as brokers, we support our customers at all times. But, um, you know, pandemics. 95% of all the policies had an exclusion uh, that was very specific for viral exclusion. And then the case would have to be made that somehow the coronavirus adhering to surfaces constitutes actual direct physical damage. So there were some political efforts on this to impose retroactive business interruption coverage for insurers, which would bankrupt the industry almost uh, within six months. Uh, that's I don't see that moving forward. I do see the prospect we're working with uh, leading congressional uh, members on a prospective public-private partnership for business interruption claims. We also have civil uh, justice-related issues that spill into the insurance industry. For the most part, my understanding from my member firms is that uh, insurers have been paying claims um, associated with uh, uh, unrest. Uh, but in some instances, we've, we've been seeing some concerns on that front uh, of a lot of carriers waiting and watching to see what others do. There could be, you know, you all know we're in, entering into a hard commercial property casualty insurance marketplace, and there could be political consequences on that. Um, I also expect to see if the Democrats prevail, I see, expect to see a vibrant debate on redlining, uh, that very incendiary issue. Uh, that uh, because of your zip code or where you live, you're paying more for insurance. Is that a result of profiling or is that a result of crime statistics? What's legitimate? What's not? You know, borderline between state and federal insurance regulation. Uh, just, uh, you know, I thought going into this year that we had two things that we're going to go through Congress that we cared about. One was going to be surprise billing. And the other was going to be financial services for the weed, uh, for cannabis. And, um, and, and the agenda has been anything but that. Um, though, I, by the way, the cannabis stuff is going to pass at some point, particularly if the days get in, uh, uh, in power. So now to, to, uh, the maps and to the, you know, obviously I care the most about, uh, the Senate. Because uh, it's almost a guarantee that if the Democrats win back the Senate with a significant majority, I mean, significant being 52, 53 or beyond, um, that they are going to do away with the legislative filibuster, that Chuck Schumer will take the uh, uh, what's known as the uh, uh, nuclear option. Initially, uh, Harry Reid did it on Supreme Court, uh, on court nominations and pr- presidential appointments. Uh, Mitch McConnell extended the nuclear option to the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of Democrats regret that Harry Reid ever started this battle. Uh, and it's very clear that Democrats will say they don't want to 
but because Mitch McConnell is such an obstructionist and not allow them, allowing them to work their will uh, that, as demanded by the American public, that they will take that step. And if we and so we're watching these numbers very, very closely because and then, you know, I mean, again, not to be alarmist or chicken little here, but uh, Vice President Biden has said that he's not a fan of packing the court. A lot of a lot of emotion, though, from the base on that. Um, There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court has to be nine justices. They changed it. They moved it to nine in 1860, reflecting the fact that there were nine circuits. Uh, uh, courts of appeal. Uh, today there are 13. Uh, so that, that's something we could see. We could see very much most of the challenger candidates I'm about to talk about on the Democratic side are in favor of statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. That would be almost surely for additional Democratic senators. So, you know, this is, you know, there's huge stakes, uh, in this irrespective of where you are, whether you think that Donald Trump is a, uh, mentally ill sociopath with his finger on the nuclear trigger, or you think he is exactly what the country needs as a businessman, as a disruptor draining the swamp, wherever you are on that and whatever you think about Joe Biden, these are really big consequences. So, yeah, yeah, so, you're, so Joe, you're, you're really talking about the impact of structural changes here, right? That uh, would have long lasting effects moving forward. I, I Yes. Pendulum swing. I don't want to be too alarmist. Um, and, and, and look, I can also pick some M&Ms out of this trail mix and leave the raisins. I mean, arguably my, what my Democratic colleague would, would say, and I think he's largely correct on this. If, if that scenario of a Democratic waves come through, it's, it's not because of the far left. Uh, they may be help, helping fund a lot of this, but most of these candidates that we're about to talk about, are trying to run to the middle. They're trying to run a Biden uh, type of campaign. Uh, and if you look at uh, in the House as well, uh, the majority makers were not the squad members. The majority makers were uh, relatively uh, moderate, purplish suburban types of members of Congress. And so that notion that they're all of a sudden going to just completely veer off uh, the crazy left, uh, I could argue myself down on that. So as we look at this map, 23 um, Republican senators up for re-election, only 12 Democratic senators up for election. I would also note most people aren't thinking about this yet. We in Washington are because in 2022, the map sucks just as bad for Republicans. Uh, there are only, I believe, 11 Democratic seats that are up in 2022, and they are all in states that are firmly blue. Uh, and so the ability if Republicans lose at this time to then say, well, in the off year, they can regain it is, is very difficult for me to envision. Uh, when you look at, uh, the, I believe the best nonpartisan political caller, I mean, he missed it in 2016, like everybody else, it's a guy named Charlie Cook, and Cook, Cook Political Report shows that there are pure, seven pure toss-up seats, two seat, Republican seats that lean Democrat. So uh, let's, and, and, and honestly, uh, the polarization that exists, if you look at the map of America today, um, you would say that Democrats really exist only in urban metropolitan regions and the close-in suburbs, and the rest of the map is a sea of red. Um, 
And that polarization is starting to reflect in the makeup of the Senate as well. It used to be, you know, you see exceptions to the rule, like a Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, who's wildly popular and in one of the most liberal states of the union, likewise, Larry Hogan in Maryland. But that they're becoming the exceptions, not not the rules. And and so as the parties sort of gravitate to their natural base, that concerns me, like the evisceration of the old congressional blue dogs, mostly southern, moderate uh uh, pro-trade, anti-trial lawyer, pro-business, uh, but, you know, socially more to the left of, uh, of, of Republicans. They've been eviscerated. Republicans were successful in rooting them out. And now we're seeing sort of the, uh, the herbal, uh, tea party of the left trying to ideologically root out the Joe Crowley's and moderates of the world. So that, that it does worry me on the polarization. Um, Joel, can, Joel, can we, um, with 15 minutes left, I know uh, we've got a fair amount of content with uh, some, so, well, just some, some of the state. If we can kind of spin through maybe some of the, the state specifically, because I know yeah. that there's a fair amount of folks. Uh, four who, four women that are uh, vulnerable on the Republican side. Let's go through them. So, uh, first of all, uh, Alabama is one seat that is going to go for Republicans. That's the one seat the Republicans are going to pick up. Doug Jones is going to lose there, kind of an accidental senator. Uh, Arizona, Martha McSally. Um, I love her, uh, but she's she's polling behind in every poll uh, to the astronaut. Uh, Colorado, Cory Gardner uh, is looking to be in a difficult spot with Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado. You've got two races in Georgia. Uh, uh, Senator David Perdue has a tough challenge from John Ossoff. Uh, and then you've got a weird race. It could be that we don't know the results of the Senate races until January because Georgia has this funky runoff system where it's a jungle primary and everybody runs together. And you've got incumbent Senator, uh, appointed Senator Kelly Leffler, who may not even make the runoff. Uh, and so that could be a, a January thing. Joni Ernst is in trouble in, in Iowa with a strong opponent. The Kansas race it looking better because the Republicans nominated the right guy as opposed to a wing nut. Uh, so I think that that one's a hold. Uh, uh, Susan Collins in Maine. Very. I don't know how you spent that. You're up and sitting in Maine right now, Brian. I don't know how I that much money can be spent in a Senate, in a state. It's it's just it's just crazy. Uh, you cannot watch uh, TV at all nowadays. I mean, you know, for the next couple of weeks because of the uh, the volume of money and ads that have been spilled out here. I would say just uh, my street level informal polling up here. I would probably throw it in similar to how uh, Cook has it in his political report as a toss up. It just seems. Uh, as, as I think you know, Joel, you know, Portland is one part of the state and then there's the rest of the state, uh, is kind of how it, uh, how it lines up. So, uh, interesting dynamics on the politics. Actually, just as an aside, um, the former governor, just, just to show you how we roll in Maine, the former governor of Maine, uh, I actually ran, inadvertently ran into at a, uh, uh, he's a part-time bartender in the town right next door to mine. So when you, be, when you're no longer governor, you just go back to bartending. It's kind of how it works. So. I, that's that's a. I would be proud to be in that profession today, and it's yeah. a pretty good one to be in right now. Real quick, um, Republicans think they've got a shot to take out Gary Peters with a strong, charismatic candidate in John James in Michigan. I doubt it. Steve Daines is t- polling a little bit better in Montana, but it, that's a tough race. He's got the former governor uh, or current governor Bullock. Uh, in a very tight, tight race. Tom Tillis in North Carolina caught, well, he caught COVID and he caught a big break a couple of weeks ago when his 
pro his family values, Mr. Moderate, veteran, uh, squeaky clean, a Democratic opponent turned out was sexting with his uh, campaign consultant in California. Most interesting race of all, South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. This is uh, my jaw dropped as everyone did in Washington when the, at the end of the third quarter, it was reported that his opponent, Jamie Harrison, raised $57 million in that quarter. Again, just staggering. The, the, the most that had ever been raised in a quarter was the, the third quarter in uh, 2018 with Beto O'Rourke t- trying to take out Ted Cruz, and that was $40 uh, uh, million. And then to a lesser – I think Lindsay will be fine, but wow, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a race. And, you know, when waves occur, they, t- they tend to not break in different ways. They tend to break all in the same direction. Democrats think that they've got Alaska, Mitch McConnell himself in Kentucky. I'll never buy that. And John Cornyn in Texas, um, and eyesight. Again, if you use the analogies of 1980 and 1994 and you squint really, really hard and Trump voters just don't show up, then you could see it, but I don't see that. Let's move into the house real quick. You know, my bottom line on this is I think the House will stay Democratic. The, um, uh, we've had a bunch of incumbents that have already lost this year. Uh, I'm not sure what that indicates. The Cook Political Report, if you look at the numbers, now on the one hand, Democrats have 30 incumbents that are in districts that Donald Trump won. Um, but, you know, Republicans are not doing a good job on offense. They're, they're mostly circling the wagons right now. And so most people think that the, in the low, low single digits, perhaps is what the Democrats will, will probably get. They're defending a lot of freshmen, but, uh, so far so good, especially on the fundraising side. And all, also, you know, post, uh, 2020, we're going to have reapportionment. States are going to lose congressional seats. Uh, New York's going to lose a couple of congressional seats. Florida is going to have as many as New York uh, at this point. So there are huge consequences on this. And then... Jill, Jill just on that one, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Is that that uh, potential reapportionment impact her district? Is that how it works? It does. There is a, uh, get this, a 29-year-old um, half Latin, Latino, half black uh, openly gay New York City councilman in a neighboring district where there's a retirement is running in anticipate and, and he's going to win. He's already won his primary. Uh, his name is Richie Torres. You heard that name here first. I think that there's a pretty good chance that his district, which abuts in Bronx and Queens, AOC's district are going to be thrown in together. And he is the anti AOC. He may be uh, a black, Latin, gay Democrat in a, in a in a 90% Democratic territory, but he's very moderate, very thoughtful, and thinks that she's destructive. So that will be interesting. Also, she's eyeballing running against Chuck Schumer in the primary, and that's going to have an influence on how Chuck Schumer would run the Senate if he's given a chance. Sure. Uh, uh, final, you just want to, you know, presidential battlegrounds. We all know the big states. Uh, it's, it really does come down to, I mean, I'd love to say that, look, everybody should vote. It's more important than ever before. But for most of you that are listening to this, it doesn't matter that much. We know how your state's going to go. I'm in Virginia, which maybe eight years ago was purple. It's blue. It is definitely going for Biden. Um, so, but if you are in Wisconsin, if you are in Michigan, if you are in uh, Pennsylvania, maybe Minnesota, but on the other hand, if the president loses Florida, if the president loses North Carolina and essential to him as well is Arizona. 
which has been trending more and more blue. I just don't see what the scenario is for him drawing that inside straight that he did the last time out mm-hmm. in terms of the electoral college. So now let me do this. I, I, I want to check myself on what. So I, I've made if, if any uh, good Trump supporting Republicans are depressed at all this. Let me give you something to hang your hat on a little bit uh, is uh, just a couple of things. First of all, uh, Monmouth University poll of Pennsylvania registered voters just a few weeks ago asked them, who are you going to vote for? Not surprising. Eight percent ratio. Joe Biden. Then they asked them, who's your closest next door neighbor going to vote for? Do you think? You add those numbers up and Trump would win Pennsylvania by five. Now, I don't know if that's because Pennsylvanians really don't like their neighbors or what that means. But that whole notion of a shy Trump voter's last factoid that I will give you is that um, in 2018, a great turnout year for Democrats, won back the House. Uh, the, the base Democratic voter, college educated women of all races uh, in 2018, Nine million registered college educated women of all races failed to show up and vote. And if you look at the core Trump voter, um, non-college educated white men, uh, 40 million registered non-college educated white men failed to show up and vote. So now where the distribution of that is, how much of a swing that can be, who knows? But, you know, I want to check myself. I bet a thousand bucks on Hillary Clinton at 10, 15 at night because there were no results yet in from Philadelphia, Milwaukee and Detroit. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to hedge my bet a little bit here as well. That's great. So uh, so a couple, uh, maybe a couple other variables maybe we can kick around. Right. We, we talked about healthcare. We talked a little bit about COVID. Do you, how much do you think the pandemic uh, and this is some of the questions we're actually we're getting through the chat room, just to kind of paraphrase some of them. But how much do you think the pandemic is going to influence, uh, you know, the outcome or the population in general? I, I think overwhelmingly. Um, and I think, you know, once the, you know, the, the president's response, again, I'm going to sound a lot like just your standard issue talking head. And I don't want to sound like that or a typical Washington lobbyist, but. But if you just look at where the polls went, um, once the president contracted it and, 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 and then the days that followed, uh, you, we saw fairly consistently national polls. Again, I think they can be, they can be skewed and national polls don't matter nearly as much as the polls in the swing states. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nationally, you've been seeing a very steady eight point, uh, Biden lead. Uh, and no president has won re-election, even though Americans tend to, you know, there have not been, been many occasions when Americans haven't rewarded uh, their president a second term. Uh, but uh, that those numbers moved to by the end of last week to 11 percent. Now, is that the bottom? Can there be curves? Do I expect a October surprises? I expect everything and anything this year. The actually just on the October surprise category, right? Um, the the story that broke in the New York Post, uh, I forget if it was a day be- two days before or yesterday, but on uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. Any of those things, you hear anything in the hallways uh, down there? Is that, a, is that a topic that may have legs? It's much ado about nothing or any early indicators on, on that or any other October surprise? I, I expect it to, to really see it flying. I expect to see TV ads on it. I think we're starting to see some already. Uh, mm-hmm. I think social media's um, reaction to pulling the, the, the New York Post, there's a back clash on that. Now, how much of that is just crap I'm hearing from Fox News? I try to watch all of them. Uh, you know, I was toggling last week uh, in between Biden's town hall and Trump 
Ross Town Hall. And, um, uh, you know, it's, Look, I think it's pretty damn smarmy behavior. Um, and the question that I don't know has been fully satisfied as to whether or not he ever talked to his dad about Ukrainian stuff. Now, look, I don't – take just one Joe Biden thing. So right after um, – um, the administration, he was building out, uh, his offices in a different building and he, and they, the Biden team, about 20 of them moved in adjacent space to our office uh, at 701 Pennsylvania Avenue. So there were all these random uncle Joe sightings in the building. And, uh, and, uh, so one day we had tried to hire him to speak at one of our conferences, uh, but he didn't preserving his options for running for president. He didn't, that was a big problem for Hillary. You know, we spent a quarter million bucks on Hillary to come speak and she got knocked on it for all these corporate speeches. So he wasn't taking it. So his chief of staff, a longtime friend of mine, I, um, I saw Uncle Joe get off um, one August day. Um, you know, we had a bunch of interns that were working. I uh, saw him get off the elevator. I pinged his, his chief of staff, said, hey, Steve, if if, uh, if, uh, if Joe won't take our quarter million bucks to come speak to us, can he at least stop by and wave hey to our interns? And so sure enough, about a, an hour later, Joe's knocking on our glass door. He comes in, spent about a half hour with us. Um, you know, really, I mean, that whole, that whole thing of Joe Biden likes to hug. I mean, everybody, uh, I, one of our, our kids was inter, uh, introduced himself as Johnson. And I said, Johnson, you know, Mr. Vice President Johnson is a dreamer. He's our dreamer in the office. Oh my God. I mean, I thought Joe was, I mean, he is, he is sniffing his hair. He is, he is locked on. I think he's a really good guy. I, I don't, I, I don't feel anything corrupt, but is all this stuff smarmy as hell? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so could it be an issue? Is it a game changer? Well, how many real undecided voters are there this at 13 days before the election? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the $64 question. How about, uh, Joel, how about, how about the topic of, uh, of voting in general, right? Mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, um, uh, that, that concept. Is that, from your vantage point, is that much ado about nothing or is no, I think, I think we could there? I think everybody's concerned that we're headed for a debacle. I'm not a conspiratorialist on this. I'm not saying that there are bags of thousands of votes that are in dumpsters, as the president said uh, last week. I just know that my assistant, um, she's the the daughter of uh, John Thune, the number two uh, Republican in the Senate. She lives on Capitol Hill. And uh, on one day at her house, she got five ballots in, you know, because people hadn't, you know, they, when they – moved out of her house in previous years, they never changed the voter registration. I, I just think, and, and I, a lot of systems are going to be overwhelmed. Uh, there are some states, you look at Wisconsin, uh, for example, uh, that can't legally even start to, to, to count the mail-in uh, votes until the day of the election itself. Uh, and you combine that with what the president has been saying, um, I think there is an awful lot of concern. Uh, and also, you know, it, it, if the votes start coming in the way they did in 2016, he jumped out to a real big early lead. So what happens if he just declares victory uh, long before all this is, uh, has been tabulated? So, yeah, I'm worried uh, tremendously. And also the whole idea of ballot harvesting. Uh, Republicans in Orange County got dinged on this last week, but you know, you've had a lot of Democrats where, you know, in states like California where you can go around and harvest the votes. You can basically, they, they get a mail-in vote 
And then you can send your campaign volunteers out to a zip code or a neighborhood that you know votes one way or the other, knock on the door, collect the ballots. Well, what happens if you're coming to an all-Democrat neighborhood and a guy and a white dude opens the door with a MAGA hat up? I'm not saying it's inherently corrupt, but I don't like this stuff uh, from a ballot integrity standpoint. I'm really worried that based on how 2020 has gone on every other front, that this could be really painful. How, let me, uh, let me throw another question we got through the chat room, but uh, given how fractured the country is right now, what are your thoughts on the fate of our democracy and, and how can it be repaired? That's a pretty small question, but why don't you take a crack at that? Well, let me just give you one story. So the week before lockdown, um, I, and I'm just going to betray my, my, my own views here and I hope no one's offended by it. Um, cause I know it's just, it's, you know, it's such a sensitive thing right now with everyone. Um, I had went to a small fundraiser, about eight or 10 of us with Mitt Romney. And I said, you know, Senator, um, look, I, you know, I, I was a big believer in the famous autopsy of your presidential campaign, ironically authored by Ryan Priebus, that said that Republicans do not sustain themselves as a party by, by just representing angry white men. And, um, and I just feel as though I'm going to be spending the rest of my uh, political career and maybe lifetime uh, clawing my way out of the rubble of our demographics. And, uh, and I said, you are probably uniquely positioned to be my psychiatrist right now. So tell me why I should be upbeat about our future. And he did give a somewhat compelling answer about how the difference between the cult of personality of Donald Trump and Trumpism. Uh, and so I thought that that was very interesting. I mean, Mike Pence, uh, may be the successor, um, and Mike Pence is not Donald Trump. Um, now, if it's Donald Trump Jr., it, uh, you know, Nikki Haley is going to be a very strong uh, potential contender, and I like her a lot. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I just what I don't want to see is the pendulum swing too far in any given direction. I don't want to see this careening motion that we uh, that those two back to back elections would would represent. I want to empower those who are in the middle. And there are a lot more of them in Congress than you would think uh, that actually just want to get the job done and want to try to work across the aisle. So a little bit of optimism there. A little bit. <laughs> How about. um so let, let me ask you about the, the polling, right? If we look back at 2016 and the polling at that time versus what you just kind of cited previously in current polling, um, if you try to relate those two, right, and what the outcome would be, uh, any any observations at all? Uh, only that the national polling really was off. Uh, Hillary Clinton won by, you know, 2.6 million votes. Um, and I think most the average of the, the major polls, NBC, Wall Street Journal, ABC, all, all, the, the median was that she would win by 4 million. That's not far off on the national polling. They really, really didn't get it right in those those three or four battleground states. And as I said, Trump drew an inside straight. Uh, and, um, it, it was, it was, it was off in those battlegrounds. And then you just look at the combination of factors of her not, you know, the most prescient email that was ever sent. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a staunch Democrat, staunch friend of, of Hillary's, uh, begging the campaign two weeks out to come to Michigan to deal with the problem. And, um, and so you look back, yeah, people missed the mark and they, they were looking at, uh, black turnout as being Obama levels. And it, it, it certainly was not in those key states. 
Gotcha. Well, so we're uh, just about out of time, Joel. Let me uh, let me take you back to actually one of your original comments there. You have your thousand dollars this time around. Where's it going? Yeah, yeah. You'd 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 have to for for me to take Trump, you'd have to spot me about uh, seventy five electoral votes, electoral college votes that I don't see right now. Okay. So so Biden wins, the Senate stays or goes, flips or stays. I am cautiously optimistic that we will only lose the Senate by one or two votes. This becomes really critical when you look at uh, back to ESI, health insurance. What does health reform look like? Right. If the D's are in there by 51 votes, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, they're not going to be there on the nuclear option. Uh, they're not going to be there on a strong, vibrant Medicare peg public option. Uh, and so I, for me, I'm going to be sweating out the Senate on election night. Yeah. But so, but it's, it's possible from your vantage point that, um, that all three, the, the presidency, the Senate and, and the house end up being democratic. I, I think it's probable. Okay. I, I, now, but I'm always been, I'm a Republican who's always been a glass half empty guy two or three weeks out from the election. Gotcha. So, so we'll take that, take that for what it's worth. Well, well, Joe, I, I, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I, uh, I actually got make it a point anytime you're down in Atlanta, I catch you at our, at our annual conferences. In fact, it's, it's one of the few things I actually attend. Hopefully nobody else from my employer is listening. Um, but I do, I find, I find the topic and your presentation of it particularly fascinating. So thanks for your insight and sharing, uh, well, it, sharing it's a- everything. I'm, I'm hoping everyone who's attended, uh, kind of picked up some new information as we head toward what will be a very consequential election on November 3rd. So it's a real privilege to be with you all. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Joel.